And if you weren't here last week for the introduction to Ezekiel 40, no problems. I've got a second introduction just for you tonight, <laughs> which means that next Wednesday night, we're going to start Ezekiel 40. Just thought I'd let you know that. There's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, since we've been in Ezekiel all of September, we didn't really, well, there was a couple of times we were in, you know, we finished chapter 39, but uh, this last section is, is really significant uh, for the reasons that we're taking this time to look at uh, a few things that will help us understand the study of Bible prophecy in general, and specifically looking at the, the, the prophecies now in, in these last nine chapters. So let me read uh, verses one through four again. This is just, again, as I did last week, I'll read it in preparation for next week. But uh, this is where we're gonna begin next week. In the five and 20th year of our captivity, the beginning of the year and the 10th month, uh, day of the month, and the 14th year after that the city was smitten being Jerusalem, in the self same day at the hand, uh, in the self same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither brought me there there to Jerusalem again in a vision in the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south and he brought me thither and behold there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. Now, in our introduction to the 40th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, which was last week, we spent a considerable amount of time explaining three different approaches or modes that students of scriptures take when studying prophetic passages. We looked at the historical approach the symbolic or the allegorical or spiritual approach, and the prophetic literal approach, which happens to be the approach that we've been taking in all of our studies of the scriptures, by the way, particularly in the study of biblical and prophetic literature. And so if you weren't here last time, you want to get uh, last week's, or maybe you heard it on live stream or, or on the uh, website, but those are places you can catch up. But as I said last time, we will, let the we will let the scriptures speak for themselves and we will take the scriptures at face value. That is the essence of the prophetic literal approach to studying Bible prophecy. The, the idea is that we will not attempt to read any meaning into the scripture that isn't clearly stated by the immediate passage or by a corresponding passage. And we will let scripture interpret scripture. This is what we desire to do every time we teach, whether it's prophecy or the gospel of John or the letters of Paul. 
Always the same, always the same approach. Because first of all, if it's God's word, if there is anything that is symbolic, it is always explained in what becomes literal. Or there is some literal thing that can explain the, symbol, the symbolism. But is it, it isn't just purely symbolic, as some look at Bible prophecy today. So that's the understanding here. This is the point of taking the word of God from Genesis to Revelation literally. Because in fact, that's how God meant it to be. So in light of this approach, the very vision that is given to Ezekiel by the Lord should be accepted as a prophecy of a great future. A great future that the Lord has planned for his people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. We know from the text that we've already studied, which is all of the rest of, of Ezekiel, that the day is coming. The day is coming when the Jews will return in even greater numbers to the promised land and they will worship the Lord exactly the way that he has always taught them and ultimately receive their inheritance of land because God has promised them these things. God has promised them an inheritance. God has promised them land, greater land than just that little strip that we call Israel today, that little strip of land that's the size of New Jersey. So when we get into the last nine chapters now of Ezekiel, we will take the time to see all that is truly literal about the promises of God for Israel. So when the Jewish exiles, those who were there in the time of, of Ezekiel, uh, when they heard Ezekiel preach the prophecy, especially the prophecies that I mentioned from chapter 33 to the very end of the book, when they heard Ezekiel preaching these prophecies, their hearts should have been and would have been obviously encouraged. They would have been encouraged because God is saying, listen, I'm not done with you, Israel. I want to bless you. The reason why you've been in captivity, the reason why you've been in this situation is because you took, you, you went away from me. You disobeyed me. You rebelled against me. But I still love you and I'm going to bring you through this time. And I'm going to promise you that I will keep my covenants. And that's what this evening's about. Talking about the covenants that God made with Israel so that these last nine chapters of Ezekiel will line up with all of Scripture and will line up with everything that is happening with Israel today. Because as I said, if you hold to a historic approach only or to the symbolic approach of Scripture and the allegorical or, uh, or spiritual approach, then you don't believe that the Israel that is in the land today is the Israel that God wants to bless. But because they're in the land, they are the ones that God wants to bless because he promised them that they would get back to the land. So now if I sound like I'm a broken record, that's okay. By the way, if I have to explain what a, what a record is, uh, <laughs> I forget we're not in the 50s and 60s anymore. All right, so you know, I'm not skipping. I'm just, I'm just telling you that these things are, uh, I'm saying these things to reinforce what the scripture is saying about God's promises to Israel. 
And so the promise was simple. The promise was simple for these last nine chapters, that they would receive a new temple, a new worship, and a new land. Now, the new worship is not like a totally different way. It's, it's, it's really based on what they know, but, but it's, it's a new way because of the new heart that they're going to receive. So keep that in mind. But it is extremely important then to note that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will keep his covenants and his promises made to Abraham and his descendants. God is going to keep his promises. He has to. When you say that Israel is not in the land anymore or the, the Israel that is in the land today is not the Israel that God is going to bless in the, in the latter days, you are, in a, in a sense, I'm just telling you right now, you are committing apostasy. And that's a strong word. But it is a word that fits right now in the times in which we're living. We can go all the way back to First, uh, First Thessalonians and our study of First Thessalonians and all of the, the prophetic passages there about the rapture of the church and, then, and so on and so forth. But Paul would talk about an apostasy. And it is an apostasy. It is, it is getting away from the truth of the word of God that he was dealing with. So we'll, we'll come back to that as we get into the last, uh, the last nine chapters. But it's important to know that God is going to fulfill his promises just as he said, because God made a unilateral promise, by the way, with Abraham. Now we'll talk about that in a moment. But a unilateral promise means that he's gonna keep his heart, he's gonna keep his part and Abraham's part. The keeping of the promise between God and Abraham was not one that says, okay, if Abraham, if you keep your part, I'll keep my part. That's like most other, uh, most other covenants. You know, we shake hands on it or we fill out a, you know, some kind of a, uh, of, a, of a document, you know, that a lawyer has to look over and stuff, you know, to make sure that both sides keep their, their, their agreements. But this was not the same kind of agreement. This was God saying, I am going to keep all the sides and I'm good at keeping it because I'm faithful to keep my covenant, okay? So these are the things that I'm just trying to reinforce in your hearts and in your minds about God's covenant with Israel. So simply the Lord's covenants and promises that were given to Israel must be completely fulfilled and that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom on the earth, sitting on the throne of David and sitting there in the city of Jerusalem. Now consider, if you will, Let's go back to chapter 37. And remember that chapter 37 was the chapter that dealt with the uh, dry bones. And uh, <clears throat> that was early on in that particular chapter. The valley of dry bones and God raising those bones and, and putting them together, putting the sinews and the flesh upon them. And that becoming really the, uh, the resurrection, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And, and in particular, the nation of Israel as it is today, because they have risen out of the bones and out of the, the depths of, of the uh, Holocaust and are now back in the land. So go to verse 21, if you will, and look at what it says here. In Ezekiel 37, verse 21, it says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel. Now, now remember that we are looking at what God is going to do for Israel in the, in the future, but he's, you know, obviously 
taking it through this time that we're living in presently. So he says, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. What does that mean? From among the nations. Remember, the, the word heathen there also means nations. So he's going to take them from among the, the, the nations. Now, where was Israel for nearly 2,000 years? Where were they? They were scattered. They had been dispersed after say, 70 AD when the Romans had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And the Israelites were scattered, or the people of Israel were scattered into all of the world. I mean, everywhere is where they went. And he says, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, the heathen, whither they be gone, wherever, in other, wherever they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. So you cannot look at that symbolically and say that that's the church or that's some other entity. That is Israel. And then he says this, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One nation. Now remember that before uh, Israel had been taken, of course, into two captivities. But after, I should say after David uh, uh, and uh, uh, Solomon, uh, at, at the time of Rehoboam, the son of, of, of uh, Solomon, uh, the nation was split in two. There was Rehoboam in the south. There was Jer Jeroboam. Uh, who took uh, the 10 tribes, 10 tribes up to the north, and uh, uh, Rehoboam had uh, Judah and uh, Benjamin in the south. And so they were, you know, split. They were a divided nation for, for many, many years. But uh, he says, I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And that, of course, is a prophecy of King Jesus. Really, the, the fullest extent of the prophecy would be that Jesus would be the king over them. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols. That's why they got in trouble with God, because they went and worshiped the idols of the nations around them. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So that is his promise to his people. Has it happened yet? No, it hasn't happened yet, but he's getting ready to. That's why they're getting back into the land. Every day, more and more people come from other nations into the land of Israel to... Uh, uh, to take hold of this thing called Aliyah, which is coming back into their land, coming back into their home. And so uh, many Jews are, are doing that, and it's happening every day. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. Now look at verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Well, who is in the line of David? Yeshua, Jesus. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of all the sheep, both of the Jews and of the believers in Yeshua, in Jesus. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. 
and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Well, who would that be? That would be Jesus, Yeshua of the line of David. Moreover, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. Now, I said everything right before that to get to that one phrase, an everlasting covenant. I know I ask you this a lot, but how long is everlasting? Well, forever, everlasting. Lasting forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My sanctuary. But not only the sanctuary. He says, my tabernacle, my dwelling place also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the heathen, the nations, shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. I set Israel apart. I set Israel apart. Not the United Nations, not the United States of America, who has had a lot of hand in trying to bring some kind of stability and peace in the Middle East by saying, well, let's go ahead and divide Israel, or let's divide the city. We are getting in trouble for that, folks. Because God says, don't mess with my city and don't mess with my people and don't mess with my land because when you try to divide it, I'm going to divide you. Now let me ask you a question. How divided are we today in this country? We're very divided today. We have an uncivil war going on in this country. And a lot of that has to do with what we've tried to do to bring peace according to man's ways of thinking and not God's way. I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So consider how each covenant then each covenant and or promise, and I'm going to touch upon a few of the covenants in the scriptures. Not all of them, but some of them. I want you to consider how each covenant or promise will be fulfilled and operating in the lives of God's people. Let's begin with the Adamic covenant, the covenant made with Adam. And there's a promise there as well. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there in Genesis 3.15 it says, And I, now remember this, God is speaking to the serpent. The previous verse he tells the serpent, listen, because of what you've done, you're going to go all your life just, you know, crawling through the dirt and the dust of the earth. But here he says to him in verse 15, now it's an interesting way to, to present a covenant to Adam, but this is what he says, And I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. 
This is a very rich, rich verse, isn't it? Because it is already prophetically pointing to the coming of Messiah. That's the seed. Her seed is the seed of the woman. That takes us all the way to the woman being Israel, as in Revelation chapter 12. It's a long way to go from Genesis to Revelation, isn't it? But that's what God is saying. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, of course, it begins with Eve because, well, Eve was there. But remember how those near fulfillments will always point to a further fulfillment. But then he says, between thy seed, you, Satan, and her seed. Her seed was singular. That's Messiah. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The promise is that of a Messiah to come for Israel and for really everyone that is a sinner who has been tainted by that sin caused by the enemy with Adam and his wife. But that seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent. But, he's, but God also says, thou shalt bruise his heel. That's a picture of the cross. That's the picture of Jesus on the cross, his heel being bruised with a nail through his feet. Now, in the book of Hebrews, th this shows us somewhat of that fulfillment where it says in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Speaking of the Messiah, the seed, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, bruising his head, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were in bondage from that day until the day that we came to Jesus Christ. So this covenant or this promise was partially fulfilled when Jesus, the promised seed, crushed the head of the serpent or devil. When? When he was on the cross. When he died. And when he was buried and when he rose again from the dead. His rising from the dead destroyed the power of sin and death and hell. Now, will st people still sin? Yeah, will people sin every day. Will people die? Yeah, people still die. But we're talking about a different kind of death. Is there still a hell? Yes. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against the promised seed, who is Jesus. So that's a partial fulfillment. And it will be fulfilled completely when the Messiah returns to transform the earth into a new Garden of Eden, as we saw back in Ezekiel 36. So let's go back to Ezekiel 36. Well, go past 37, go to 36. 
And let's remember what we studied back then in verses 8 through 11. For here God says, But ye, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. They're coming, in other words. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be builded, and I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bring fruit. And I will settle you after your old estates, and will do better unto you than at your beginnings. And you shall know that I am the Lord." So when Jesus comes to rule and reign for a thousand years on this earth, that's the kind of transformation that's going to take place in the land of Israel. Remember last week I talked about the topography and the geography changing. It's all going to change when Jesus goes into the city. And we talked about in the Zechariah uh, uh, prophecy that the land itself, when Jesus places his feet on the Mount of Olives, everything begins to change. The Kidron Valley that is right in front of him is going to split into two. And making the way for Jesus and all of his saints who come with him back to rule and reign, that's you and me. To enter into the city for Jesus to take complete control of what was his from the very beginning. And now he's going to rule for a thousand years on this earth. And then, of course, will come a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, all where righteousness will dwell. And then comes the covenant that God made with Abraham. So the Adamic covenant really touches on all of us because all of us are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're affected uh, as well by what Jesus does. But Israel is affected primarily. But then comes the Adamic, or I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant made with Abraham. And you all are familiar with this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The covenant being this, Now the Lord had said unto Avram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make, thee, make of thee a great nation. Now remember, God is telling Abraham these things. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. Now have you seen anything so far that says, or suggests in any way that he says, I'm going to do these things, Abraham, but you got a few things yourself that you need to do. Anybody see anything there? No? Okay. He's just saying, I'm going to bless you. Abraham doesn't deserve it, in a sense. Because he said, well, okay. Now, that would be, be a really nice kind of blessing, right? I'm going to bless you today. Okay. Is there anything I have to do? No, I'm just going to bless you. Now, how many of you receive blessings like that? I know I have. And every day, something happens where we just like, wow, Lord, 
Amazing. You're just wonderful. Your grace. Even if we sit at home and we don't do anything all day long. That's how wonderful he is. Now, he's not going to do that if you keep sitting in your house all day long and not do anything. And you're still in your PJs and you still got your chanclas on and whatever else. All right. Things got to change a little bit. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. Grand statement. I will bless thee. Make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. Interesting that Abraham's name is a blessing to three major religions, isn't it? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I will bless them that bless thee. Ah, here's where things get really interesting. I will bless them that bless thee. Whoever blesses you and your people, I'm going to bless them. And curse him who curses thee. There are a lot of people cursing Israel today. And too many of them are in the church. They're cursing Israel. I wouldn't want to do that. Because I want to be blessed. How many of you want to be blessed? I mean, really, raise your hand. If you want to be blessed. If you don't want to be blessed, you got your hand down. Ooh, that's not good. No good. I want to be blessed. So if we bless Abraham and his descendants, because that reaches right into Israel, because he was Jacob, Jacob was, who later becomes Israel, right? God changes his name. He was the one that God had chosen. The other line that went to Ishmael was not the chosen of God. God blessed him, but God also gave a prophecy about what would happen to the people of Ishmael. We see a lot of that today in the Arab nations, the Islamic culture, the Islamic religion, and so on. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee. But notice this, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now that is a part of the promise and covenant that we ourselves haven't yet seen, yet God is going to do that because he said he would. So that because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean that he's not going to do it. So because the Messiah, Jesus, is a descendant of Abraham, he will bring the very special blessing that he promised to all people of all nations, the blessing of his very presence and all that his presence means. What happens when Jesus begins to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years? Well, what does he bring with him? Well, he brings his love, he brings his joy, he brings his peace, he brings his security along with his righteousness and with his justice. That is how he will rule for a thousand years. And not only that, but the Jewish people will finally inherit all the land first promised to Abraham. And contrary to what we see today, especially in the United Nations, Israel will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth in fulfillment of the Lord's promise. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in our 
study the last few chapters of, of, of Ezekiel. But there are going to be some nations. We've already heard of some nations that are going to be destroyed, some nations that are going to be judged uh, mightily by God because of the way they treated Israel. But there will be those who are remnants of those nations that will be blessed because they come humbly to God. They repent in essence. Nations will be given the opportunity to repent. So that's going to happen when Jesus comes to rule and to reign. And then there is the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made with God to Moses, a covenant and a promise. I'd like to have you turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verses 5 through 9. And here it says in verse 5, Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant. Now there is a covenant here that is conditional. Obedience. The keeping of the covenant. If you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Now that's very important to our understanding of what's going to happen in the last section of Ezekiel. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, now remember when we talk about the covenant made about being obedient, we're also talking about the law that God gave to Moses to bring to the people. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Whew, that's quite a statement. All that the Lord has commanded we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Well, it hasn't been an easy ride for the children of Israel since they left Egypt. Because the first thing that they did after the Lord uh, delivered them from their bondage in Egypt the first thing they did was complain. They complained about the situation. They complained about their circumstances. They complained about the conditions of the, of the, of the desert experience. They said to God, God, you brought us out here to die. And every time they complained, God would bless them. Not because he was forgetting <laughs> their complaints, because at one point, he's ready to wipe them out for their complaints. And Moses has to get there as an intercessor. And of course, he knew that that was, was, was going to happen. And that's a good sign for us because Moses is a type of Jesus, our intercessor. So th these are good things to know. But the fact of the matter is, this particular covenant will be fulfilled completely. 
because it hasn't been fulfilled at all. <laughs> so remember, this is partly a, a, a covenant of, of conditions. But this covenant will be fulfilled completely when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. And when this happens, God's very purpose for calling and establishing the Jews as a nation will finally become a reality. He will be the God of the Jews, and the Jews will at last be God's people in the proper way, and with a proper heart. It will all fall into place. Take, for example, Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. This day the Lord thy God has commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Thou hast avouched or declared the Lord this day to be thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord has avouched, which means he's declared or proclaimed thee, the Lord has avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee, and that thou shouldst keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he has made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he has spoken. Well, again, he made that as a, as, as a, as a statement of declaration and promise, but time and again, they would disobey God. So was the, was the problem with God's side of the covenant or with theirs? It was with their side, of course. And yet God reminds them of his own covenant, going back to Abraham, going back to the unconditional covenant that he made, the unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham. Abraham did nothing and can do nothing to keep his side. So his promise, in other words, God's promise, will be fulfilled eventually. But it is in bringing all of his people back to where they will see him as God and only him as God. That is, the God of Israel. And so when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom, the fact that the Lord loves the Jews as much as he loves everyone else will be proven. In fact, he loves the Jews, not that he loves them more, but he does say something of, of, of value for them when he says, I did not love thee because you were greater in number. This is Deuteronomy 7, by the way. Greater in number or, 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 or greater than the nations, but I love you because you are least. I love you because I love you. <laughs> He's chosen to love them in a totally different way than he loves all the other nations and all other peoples. So through Jesus the Messiah, the Lord will give the Jews one final opportunity to be saved and to live righteously, keeping his holy commandments. And don't forget what Paul said in the book of Romans when he said all Israel will be saved. That being the Israel that comes to God in the time that he has appointed for them to come back into the land. When they see their Messiah, when they see him 
whom they pierced, and they weep because they recognize who he is, all Israel will be saved. So understand it from that particular perspective. They will keep his holy commandments. For them to do this, it will be not through their power or might. Never has it been for any of us or any of the Jews to do what we are to do in our own power or in our own might. And this is the reason why the scripture says, not by power nor by might, but by thy spirit. But by my spirit, saith the Lord. By my spirit. So they will keep this covenant now through the power of Christ's presence in the millennial kingdom and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So now there are a few questions that we need to deal with. Those are the covenants that we're going to deal with. But there are a few questions that we need to deal with in regards to a literal description of the future that awaits Israel in the Messianic kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. Now, since Jesus Christ has already died for the sins of the world, here's one of the questions. Why would there be further need for sacrifices? What we're going to learn in chapters 40 to 48 is that once this new temple is built, there will be sacrifices again. And we are talking about the, king, the, the temple of the, of the millennial kingdom. And of course, we're going to talk about that when we get there. But this is one of the questions people ask. Why would there be further need for sacrifices? If Jesus indeed completed the work of salvation by fulfilling all the types and all the symbols of the Hebrew scriptures, second question, why will a new temple be built for the Jewish people? Why will the priesthood, third question, why will the priesthood and certain worship procedures be reinstituted? Why? Those are the questions that we're going to ask, but we're also going to answer them as we get into these last few chapters. So in a word, when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, the Lord will use the sacrifices and the worship facilities of the old covenant to clearly show the Jewish people how they are fulfilled in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that they have pierced. They will see how it all fits in to their own salvation. When Christ sets up his kingdom, the Jewish people will finally understand how the temple and the sacrifices pointed to their Messiah and his sacrificial death for them. And they will celebrate the Lord's death. Listen, they will celebrate the Lord's death praising him by offering sacrifices to symbolize what he did for them when he died upon the cross. Now, I'm just getting a little bit ahead of... Uh, of ourselves here, okay? We're getting a little bit ahead. But, but the point of the fact is that this is what we're going to be studying as we get into this last section. The sacrifices will be a living reality in the lives of the Jewish people. See, one thing that we have to remember is, is that time and time again in the prophets, time and time again, and even Jesus would, would comment on it, he would say, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. And many times the Jewish people had everything in front of them, but they didn't understand a thing. 
They never went beyond what those symbols meant, what the temple meant, what the tabernacle meant, what the, what the menorah was all about, what the bread, the showbread was all about, what the table of, 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 uh, of, of incense was all about. Um, none of those things. They did the things to the point that they did ob obediently for a while, but then they did them by rote. They did it and they fell into a rut. And when you fall into a rut, eventually you're going to rot. And their spiritual life rotted. And they became rotten because there was no understanding. If they had listened, if they had sought with all of their heart what everything meant, wouldn't God not have told them? So it reflects upon the heart that sits back and says, well, I don't know what it's all. I just go, I just go to church. I just go to church. You know, I do this and do that. There's some people in certain denominations today, they don't say they're Christian. They say, I'm this and I'm that. I'm a Catholic and I'll be a Catholic till I die. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you said it. I've even heard Baptists say that. I'm a Baptist and I'll be a Baptist till I die. Pues okay, bueno. But what about Jesus? What about being a believer? Isn't that what this is all about? So we know what to do, but we don't know what it's all about. Well, think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He came by night. Don't want anybody to know he's going to talk to Jesus. Asking him all kinds of questions. And Jesus just said very simply, unless you're born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You mean I gotta like get back into my mother's womb and I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to mess with Jesus. I mean, he's, he's trying to figure this out. The Lord is going to lift the veil from Israel and they're going to see their Messiah. Then they're going to understand what everything was about. The sacrifices will be a living reality in the lives of the Jewish people. Consider what the other prophets wrote concerning sacrifices being offered up to the Lord during his kingdom on earth. Turn to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it in overdrive now because of time. Isaiah 56 verses five through seven. I remember this is about that time, about the millennial reign. It says, even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now remember when Jesus used that statement at the temple while he was on the earth. 
about the temple being a house of prayer when he's overturning the tables of the money changers. But he was pointing to the, to the uh, millennial kingdom. And then there's Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 15 through 18. Jeremiah 33, 15, in those days and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up into David. You know who the branch of righteousness is? Jesus. He's the branch of righteousness. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. When? When he comes to rule and reign for a thousand years on this earth. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherein she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man, which means David shall never lack a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Well, that's Jesus. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want or lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings. There's going to be priests. It's one of the questions that we're going to answer. And to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifices or to do sacrifice continually. So even the other prophets, not just Ezekiel, but all the other prophets are making reference to sacrifices and priesthood. Zechariah chapter 14, let's turn there. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. Now remember I talked about this earlier about nations that are going to be around during this time. There's still going to be some people that had come against Israel. Listen to what happens. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Israel, or I'm, I'm sorry, against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. So what is that telling us? There will be certain feasts that will be kept in the millennial reign of Christ. And again, we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, and it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. Interesting. So if they don't want to come up, okay, well, you're not going to get any rain. Where are you at? Rain is a blessing, folks. Rain is a blessing. Now, I know too much rain, and we've seen this happen. Too much rain can bring a lot of sorrow, a lot of tragedy. But rain in Israel is God's blessing on the land. We have been in Israel after a certain droughts that have happened and it rains and the people are out in the streets. They're just, they're just thanking God because it's raining. It even happened in, in, in the, in the uh, well, it was in March, but it started snowing and the people stopped their cars. Everybody just stopped and got out because it was snowing. It's a blessing because it's going to bring water. <laughs> and water is something that is a blessing from God to the people. So notice in verse 18, it says, and if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, they have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're going to have to talk about certain distinctions about the millennial reign. Yes, Christ is ruling and reigning, 
but he doesn't tell everybody how to think. Why? Well, it's just like today. When you tell the Lord you love him, did he force you to tell you? Or did he force you to tell him that you love him? Or do you just love him? Because you have chosen to follow him. See the difference? Some people say, hey, you should do this and you should do that. God says, hey, if you do it, I'll bless you. Because you do it from your heart. Remember, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. You shall love the Lord. But if you don't love the Lord, what's going to happen? God has given every opportunity for people to love him. But why don't they? Well, don't answer that. I don't know. <laughs> everybody's, some di everybody's different. You know, everybody has a, a struggle in their lives. The problem is that let's not fall into the trap of just kind of going along and just saying, eh, you know, yeah, I love the Lord. <laughs> Unless there's a fire inside, I mean, what, what's your motivation? Well, who puts that fire there but God? God has put it there. We need to tap into the, every resource that the Lord has given us, His Word, His Spirit, His love, His grace, His gifts, everything that God has given, we need to tap into. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In, the day, in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. That's going to be written upon the bells of the horses. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls after, or I'm sorry, like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. Everything is going to be set apart for the Lord. Everything. Notice the next phrase. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Not going to happen. Everything is going to be pure. Everything is going to be pure. All in all, the sacrificial system mentioned in the last section of Ezekiel will be used as picture lessons. Pay attention now. Picture lessons for Israel. To demonstrate the need of holiness or the need for holiness in the consecration and purifying of the temple and the altar. They will be visual reminders of man's sinfulness and his need for redemption while at the same time illustrating the finished and completed sacrifice of Messiah who provided atonement for mankind once for all. Once for all. Of course, we will deal with the sacrifices and the priesthood when we look at those passages in detail. But there is one more covenant that we don't want to forget. That is the Davidic covenant the covenant, covenant made with David. Notice in 2 Samuel 7, if you will, 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. Pardon my breathing hard here. I'm just straightening up, getting my posture in order here. Getting my breath. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. 
Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Hey, Israel, you don't have to move anymore. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, I think about all the times I've moved over the last 40 some years, you know. Move from this little house to the next little house to the next little house, to a little bigger house, a little bigger house, a little bit, and then back to a little, you know, and just back, you know, just, I don't want to move no more. I know that's, that's terrible English. <laughs> I don't want to move anymore. What about Israel? Man, they've been going all over the place for thousands of years. And now God says, oh, you don't have to move anymore. <sighs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> no more moving. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. No more attacks, folks. No more bombs coming over the border at night, in the day. No more terrorist attacks. Also, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. He's speaking to David, right? I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. The seed has gone from Adam through Seth, the son born after Abel had been killed by Cain, and it is in Seth's line through David to Jesus. He shall build a house for my name. Who? Messiah, Yeshua. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His kingdom, underlined forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, now this throws so many people off. Because if we're talking about Jesus, how could he even commit iniquity? But it's interesting that every modern translation doesn't really do justice again to the very fact that what it says, and even, you know, King James is a little confusing. If he commit iniquity, literally it means if he bear iniquity. Now, did Jesus not do that? Did Jesus not bear our iniquity on the cross? Did he not take upon himself on, in that flesh? He became sin who knew no sin? This is what it's pointing to. Along the way to him being there in that time that's yet to come. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. How was Jesus treated? Chastened with the rod of men. Beaten with the stripes of the children of men. This is talking about the cross. I will be his father. He was his father. 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But did he? Not at all. Not at all. But by my mercy, verse 15, but my mercy, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. What a powerful statement he makes there. I have to tell you, I've looked through some commentaries. Nobody wanted to touch that verse. But it was between this, the moment that he speaks to David, pointing to the kingdom, that in between, if he commit iniquity, if he bear iniquity, if he bears the sins, he will be chastened. And, the, and he will receive the stripes. You read Isaiah 53. And think about what that says. That's Isaiah 53 right there in that statement. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Healed from sin. And so David's descendant, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, will sit on the throne of David and rule over his people forever. Though on this earth for a thousand years, and of course in the new heaven, and there'll be a new earth and there will be a new Jerusalem. The promise could be no more, the promise could be no clearer, I should say. And when Christ returns, many will immediately know that he is the true Messiah. And they will commit their lives to him. Sadly, all unbelievers will be banished from his kingdom. But all who trust in the Lord Jesus, God's Spirit will indwell them, and the laws of God will be written upon their hearts. And just as we closed last week, we're going to close this week. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The new covenant. And with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? The Mosaic covenant, remember? It had a condition to it. Which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Now who's doing this? God. God's doing it, right? Do we see that he's requiring them to do anything here? No, he says, I'm going to put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And they shall teach no more every, neighbor, every man his neighbor and every man his brother, say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I want to yell that to every person who's, who's a you know, replacement theology nut. And all of these crazies that keep saying that the Israel in the land today is an oppressor and doing it from pulpits today. I want to just yell and say, God is going to forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And folks, they're in the land.